Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is drivers can drive remotely too with my friend Nils Alsted. Nils is the chief product officer at Phantom Auto, a technology platform that enables companies to remotely control vehicles across sites from thousands of miles away with just a click of a button. By combining autonomy with remote operation, Phantom Auto is enabling unmanned vehicles to accomplish more, safely operate in challenging scenarios, and collect real-world data. Guys, this interview gives you a glimpse into the future. We're eventually going to be autonomous with a lot of vehicles, but before we're there, we're probably going to have a lot of remote operations. The guys over at Phantom Auto do both. Check out my interview with Nils. But... Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tomorrow. Website is tomorrow.io. Tomorrow has developed a weather intelligence and climate security platform that is custom built to help logistics and transportation companies to reduce the impact of weather on their operations. The cost of weather-related accidents, delays, inventory damage, service failures, hours of service problems, they're enormous. But what can we do? We can't change the weather. But we can do a better job of planning around the weather. And that's exactly what they do for you over at Tomorrow.io. They have their own satellites. This is the next generation of weather forecasting. Check them out at Tomorrow.io. I will put a link in the show notes so you can reach out and talk to them. So how's it going, Nils? Hey, Joe. It's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to speak to you today. I'm excited to talk to you, too. It's a very interesting topic. So, Nils, please introduce yourself and your company, where you're calling from today. Absolutely. So, my name is Nils Olstad, calling from Colorado. And the company that I work for, where I'm currently the chief product officer, is called Phantom Auto. We are a multi-country company with offices in San Francisco, Denver, but also Tel Aviv in Israel, as well as in Sweden. Very nice, very nice. So what do you guys do? We do remote operations. So we develop solutions to basically control vehicles, but control them remotely. And those vehicles can be anything from a forklift to a yard truck to a delivery robot or a construction vehicle. So we develop both a software solution, but also hardware and safety, as well as offering services such as the driver itself. So you don't necessarily make the, the forklift. You make the system that gets retrofitted onto the forklift? Absolutely. So we work with a forklift OEM, and then we collaborate with them, and we develop a product either jointly or we'll develop it on our side. And we will retrofit it, place cameras and computers and antennas, whatever else is needed, and make it so that a customer of ours, which is typically a logistical company, can operate it at their site. And it's just continuing to grow this whole idea of remote work. And, you know, during the pandemic, we all worked remotely, but there were certain jobs that you said just can't be done remote. I think you're going to tell us there's a lot of jobs that we've traditionally thought couldn't be done remotely that are now, with the help of your technology, becoming, in some cases, remote work. Absolutely, Joe. So if you look historically, we've had this big thing in telehealth where 
nurses and doctors uh, could work remotely and take phone calls. That moved over into customer support. And during COVID, like you mentioned, a lot of engineers or maybe people working in banks actually proved that they could work from home. But one of those areas where we lack the ability to work from home and, and lack the ability to give those opportunities for people were in the physical space where we physically move a package, whether that's a pallet or that's a yard, or maybe it's just a burrito for a college student. Yeah. And before we hit record, we we're talking about this whole idea of making the jobs, all jobs, jobs that somebody wants, because we're going to, as as baby boomers retire, and I'm one of the younger baby boomers, as they retire, we're going to be short of heads. We are, this is already a country, the United States, and I suspect other Western countries are having the same problem. We don't have as many children as we need to replace the generation. So we're kind of having a demographic, I won't call it a crisis, but it's going to be a little bit of a problem. And so the idea of saying, oh, Joe, Nils, I'd like you to come to this job and it's backbreaking and you'll hate it, but I just need you to do it for the next 30 years. You're like, I'll do it for the next 30 minutes until I figure out something else, right? Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. And I think that there's a cultural shift that's happened in the past. We'll speak about myself later, but my background is within logistics and this is back 15 years. And I was able to start at a warehouse and work my way up. And, and a warehouse back then was seen as a career path. You could stay in that warehouse until you retired, but you could also work your way up. And today's uh, kids coming out of college or, or high school, they just don't look at logistics as a career path. And I think it's really bad for them. I think in the techie company, tech companies, they are definitely, because I've said, it, I've said many times to younger people in this space, you wouldn't have been in this logistics space 10 years ago. Because technology wasn't as much. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and I think it's a great point. So let's talk a little bit about you. That is not a Colorado accent. So tell us, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you joined Phantom Auto. Absolutely. So you're totally right. My accent is a mix of many different countries and, and uh, continents. So born and bred in Sweden. That's where I grew up, actually on the West Coast uh, in a city called uh, Gothenburg where I attended the Gothenburg University, and there's a technical university called Chalmers there as well. But I also, after I came to America, I spent six months at MIT as well. Very nice. And six at uh, remotely, I will add, six months remotely at um, University of Michigan. Oh, I'm a Wolverine. Go blue. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just um, interviewed Yossi Sheffi from MIT, and a few months ago, I interviewed Chris Kaplis from MIT. Chris Kaplis is also at DAT. And I love their micro master's program in supply chain. You guys, if you're interested in getting a supply chain degree, a master's, it, you don't have to have great undergrad grades. You just have to take this, these classes. So they have a fantastic program. I think they just graduated their millionth person. Now, I think traditionally when you hear of a school like MIT, you go, oh, yeah, I can't get in. Nope, you can get in. But I think what's also interesting is you can also do it remotely. You can do it for free, for free. Now, they're not going to give you a grade or a degree, but you can get a micromasters program, five, five classes remote. If you want to get the full masters, you got to go on campus. And it doesn't, they're not going to look at your undergrad grades. And traditionally, we've looked at MIT and go, oh, that's the elite of the elite. You can't get in there. I love that they have an, the idea that 
our mission is to educate the planet, not educate the smartest kids who can get in the school. I agree. And actually, when I went to MIT, I went through my company. So my sponsored, I was sponsored by my company to take six months there in operational management. Great classes and definitely a great school as well. Yes. I remember I had a buddy of mine who went to MIT back in the day and we went to visit him. I was on my way home from Halifax, Nova Scotia. It seems close on the map. Those are a long way from each other, but yeah, loved it. Love, obviously, Boston's done a fantastic job. And is that considered Cambridge? I don't know. It was cool. I just know that. Absolutely. Well, to continue, so I, but most of my career has been spent within logistics and supply chain. So running warehouses, uh, running return teams, running service and repair teams. And I've lived in the Sweden, of course. And I've been in the U.S. for about 10 years now. But I've also done six months in Panama, which was an amazing opportunity, setting up a, a operations down there, as well as spending six months in Australia. As well. Wow, wow. So are you here in the United States to stay? Are you a citizen? Well, with the caveat that my parents are probably going to listen to this, <laughs> uh, I'll probably return to Sweden one day. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm glad we live in a world where you don't have to. It used to be like if you were to leave Europe and come here, you'd be like, well, that's it. We'll never see them again. But now you can go back and forth. So that's nice for our mom and dad. So besides mom and dad and besides food, what do you miss the most about Sweden while you're in the United States? Good question. You know, I miss a lot of the history. I miss a lot of the, of course, culture, because I grew up there. But I also love the American culture. But I'd say history, walking around, seeing thousand-year-old buildings. Or and we don't have that. <laughs> no, I know. I think the oldest house in Denver is 150 years. And I, I grew up in a house older than that. So, yeah. I was just looking that so long ago. I'm always doing my ancestry. I'm of Irish descent. and But they said, yeah, if you have like blue eyes, they say that's probably like Viking Viking ancestry. I was like, oh, all right. Way to go, Vikings. They made it over to the little island where my ancestors are from. <laughs> when I say they, I guess that's me. It seems like a lot more fun to be a Viking than be a logistics guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it changes with the time. I think Vikings was fun a thousand years ago. I think today you should be in logistics. For sure. So when did you join? I know you said you've mostly been in warehousing. So when did you join Bantam Auto and why? Yeah, good question. So I'll, I'll take a little bit step back. So I had worked mostly in supply chain and, and logistics for the same company for 11 years. And I loved it and they treated me extremely well. But around 2017, I got asked to come join a small startup that did technology and, and autonomous vehicles. So I joined them. I had a great, great time. And after about a year and a half, we sold it to Amazon, which was an amazing experience. And I had two fantastic years at Amazon. And I learned so much there and, and developed myself. But after about two years there, there was just something in me that felt like you know what? I, I love doing robotics. I love doing solutions. But instead of just doing it for one single customer, I want to do it for the whole market. I want to do it for every single warehouse company out there. And I got a great opportunity to join Phantom. So about two years, two years, I think two months by now, I took the step and, and moved over here to Phantom, which I'm super happy. So I know we, we mentioned forklifts. So let's start with forklifts. You guys can have somebody re work remotely driving that forklift and it's it could be a tr oem 
forklift that you guys retrofit? How long does it take you to retrofit it? Great question. So we today, we do have to work with certain brands and certain models. There are some technical implications and we want to keep costs down and make it good for customers. So rather than doing one-off models, we typically partner with an OEM, spend a lot of time with them discussing what we want to do, what they want to do, and we select a model that suits both what we believe is the right one from a technical perspective, but also what suits the market. So we spend a lot of time with our customers trying to figure out do we have the right roadmap? Are we going after the right forklift? And then we start working on it. We retrofit it. We understand controls. We understand safety and we safety sensors ourselves. And then we do the full integration. And an integration, depending on the complexity of the vehicle, can take anything from, I would call it, nine months to a year and a half. So so I'm sure that that time will continue to go get lower and lower as you get more experience. What I think is interesting about forklifts in general is probably when you started 15 years ago, in a, they would say, yeah, Nils, you've got to take some lessons before you can drive the forklift. When I started, the first, when I was young, I remember somebody saying, oh, there's a forklift. It, people knew it was dangerous and all that, but it wasn't particularly like in certifications or training. Now I think we recognize, okay, that, that is a weapon in the wrong hands, right? So, but we have these forklifts and I think we also become aware, not only can they be dangerous, but also they can make a whole bunch of unnecessary trips around the warehouse and they don't have a route to follow. Like we give routing software for, for local deliveries. Also, when something was to be dropped, if something got dropped off a forklift, we never knew in the past. Now, from what I can tell, they have cameras on most of the new ones. And so we have more and more sensors going on to these. So that what felt like kind of this low tech machinery is becoming increasingly high tech. Am I right to say that? I think you're very right to say that. Although I will say that uh, I will echo what you're saying about safety. I mean, these forklifts weigh thousands of pounds. They carry thousands of pounds. They drive fast and they drive fast in very narrow and very busy operations. And if you look at the injury rates in America, it's quite atrocious how many injuries we still today have. And you can add smaller sensors, you can add tools, and that makes it better. But there is still fundamental risks of having people operate close to heavy machinery uh, traveling at high speeds. So the more you can remove the human out of there, the safer the environment. That's just what I was going to say. I think it won't be so long before we say we don't have people walking the floors of the warehouse. There's no need. I think there's always going to be some need. Well, maybe in the, maybe loading the truck, but I guess my point is get them out of the certain I, where I see. I was saw like these high shelves, and they and they have big signs that says "Warning, you know, forklifts coming this way." And I remember these guys are going very fast, which I guess they, we're being asked them to go very fast because they want to get very efficient on their day. But it, there's some blind turns for them, and if there's somebody who's kind of obliviously walking down the aisle they, they could they could kill the, that person if they're not careful yeah and, and you know joe don't quote me but i think about 75 people every single year in america dies because of a forklift accident that's 75 people who won't go home to their families uh, who won't you know take, you know be there when the kids fall asleep i mean it's it's 
it's a lot more dangerous than people yeah. think. And by the way, when we talk about running any sort of operation, especially if you talk about factory operations, the most important metric is always safety. And that you hear some people will say that kind of, you know, that's what the mission statement says. But if you just get talk to the best plant managers, they will tell you safety is the number one because you cannot forget the right morale. You'll, and no one's going to worry about cost or delivery or quality or efficiency or effectiveness if they're worried, if their coworker was injured, if they think the company doesn't care about them. And, and by the way, it's also <laughs> this to put a number on it, but let's face it, you, you injure somebody, there's potentially millions of dollars of liability. So typically if you, if you find an operator who really understands what he's talking about in a warehouse or a factory, he's going to say top priority safety. Absolutely. And you know, we at Phantom, we consider safety. That's a competitive advantage for us. And it's not just about making it safer by better cameras, but it's building the superpower into our system that allows that whoever operates remotely, that they they are part of a system where we have LIDARs, we have cameras, we have multiple things together that comes together. And you mentioned training certifications, all of our drivers, whether they're US-based or, or based in Latin America, are all going to get the same OSHA certification for training. They're all going to go through weeks of training before we let them loose. And, and these are heavy, heavy equipment, but with the right training, with the right safety sensors, and the right system around it, we've been able to be dramatically safer. And we work closely with our customers to understand what safety standards do they want us to follow. As well. Right. So this, once it's retrofitted, and I, again, I know it takes up to nine months now or even longer, but that will continue to lower, I suspect, as you work closer and closer with these OEMs. Once that's been retrofitted. I don't know if that's the right word, equipped, whatever you want to call it. I can, I could, if I was, had the proper certifications, the proper training, I could operate a forklift in a warehouse or a factory remotely from how far away can I be? Great question. So it depends a little bit on the use case, but we can be thousands of miles away. So we've had people sitting in Japan operating in the US. Today we have a number of operators operators down in Mexico, who is operating all across the, the North America continent. We're also going to launch drivers in other places. But yeah, I mean, the technology is getting better, our technology is getting better, and internet connectivity keeps getting better and better as well. So that distance just keeps getting further and further away. So I'm assuming it has a camera. So if I'm that remote driver, I can see what I'm doing so let's just say I'm I'm driving a forklift and I'm here in Michigan and I'm driving a forklift by you out in Colorado. Is there like a latency, you know what I mean? Like a delay in what's happening? Absolutely. So to first describe latency. So latency is the time it takes basically for data to transmit. So in this case, probably from the cameras and from the vehicle to the driver. And then the driver needs to send commands back to the vehicle. So you send this data both ways. And that latency for a lot of just being on a Zoom call uh, can be quite high. But another one of our competitive advantages, we'll probably speak about why we decided to acquire a company in Sweden later in this podcast. A big reason for us to exist is to lower that latency. So the further we can lower the latency, the further away the driver can be. And just to give you some numbers there. So there's some studies made on video games. You talk about milliseconds, so a thousand of a second. So around 200 milliseconds 
people don't want to maybe play video games and they don't want to be be on, on virtual phone calls because it just becomes annoying when you hear something and then the lips move a second later. So we have to be below that as well for our drivers to feel like when they're taking a turn, they can actually see the cameras changing as the vehicle itself is taking yeah. Now that you mentioned video games, it occurred to me that all of that wasted time playing video games might come in handy for some people. You know, it's an interesting uh, finding that we have that a lot of the people who like working remotely the most and, and who do the best at us very often come from a video game experience. Yeah. I'm going to date myself, but I had to go to the arcade to play video games. And then, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was the very best at asteroids at my college. It cost me hundreds of dollars, but I made it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I had an Xbox 360. I've got a new TV and it didn't fit. And I was like, you know, I should not have this anymore. I'm getting too old for this, but I love it. I loved it. <laughs> I'll tell you a fun story there. So we have a remote operator who kept driving vehicles and he was very, very, very good. And we kept asking him like, how come you're so good? And I made the mistake to say to him, well, it can't be video games because you never play video games. And he said, well, actually, I watch my grandson every week on Thursdays and all we do is eat pizza and play video games. Right. So even the older generation can catch up to video games. I feel like, I think video games are going to be so... Uh... I think we're going to find senior citizens playing video games. Now, your grandparent right now, not him. My generation, we played games. <laughs> well, a lot of us played at arcade, but to your point, there's even grandpa played those games. And I can see as they get more realistic, it's easier to, um, and also the, the, the games just got better and better. So I can't have it at my house. It's like why I can't have TikTok on my phone. I just feel like I just waste too much time. So uh, so anyway, it's what's fantastic about what we're talking about here is I could do that job remotely. So here we are talking on July 3rd. There's a lot of people who would prefer to be on the road visiting relatives or up at their cottage or out fishing. And all of a sudden I can be far, far from the job. And I'll throw another thing out there. We are outsourcing and near sourcing a lot of stuff to other countries now. I, one of my sponsors is Lean Solutions Group. They have 9,000 people. I think the vast majority work in logistics. And when they started, it was just, we'll do track and trace. We'll do these simple jobs. Not anymore. Now they, you name it, they do technology programs, they're doing marketing, they're doing operations. The competitive advantage that many companies have is that they are able to to bring on basically a strategic partner in Latin America that has a workforce that is better than ours as far as like getting them on board quickly. It's not easy to hire fast here. No, no, it's... It's interesting that churn in warehouses today in the U.S. is super high. And we know a lot of our customers and, and, and a lot of the partners or, or people we speak to, they all struggle with churn. And a lot of that has come from, for instance, Amazon opening the warehouse. And suddenly now all the warehouse workers look at Amazon and says, well, I'll make 50 cents more an hour. Why wouldn't I move over there? And, and you have this issue with some companies they are spending more money on recruitment than they do on sales and marketing. And the ability to then, like you said, find a partner like Phantom, where we can come in and help you out, but we can also then provide you with some of the drivers. You're still going to keep your own drivers, and we're absolutely not a competitor to local drivers, but 
to augment their workforce with a workforce, maybe in Latin America, but also maybe in the U.S., but a different type of demographics in the U.S. Yeah, and that's another and thing you mentioned: augment. So if you said I, it's it's maybe let's just say it's Christmas season, and you say I need I need a forklift driver, but maybe it's let's just say I'm in Michigan, you're in Colorado, where it snows. Maybe you have some some retirees who are down in Florida or New Mexico, and they say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll gladly do the forklift for a month while you're in a jam, but I'm not." driving, I'm not coming back to the cold weather. I want to stay in the warm weather while I'm working. And we're, we've always had this challenge in America where the, the workers are in the wrong place. And it's a big place. It's not like, oh, I'll just drive four hours out to Colorado. <laughs> You're like 30 hours from here. Absolutely. And, and think of it also that it's Christmas Eve, you're going to have a big dinner, your family's coming, you're working in a warehouse, and you, you hear that a big storm is coming. Are you going to take the chance and work your full shift and then go home? Or are you going to go home to make sure you you, you uh, get on time to the Christmas dinner? And these are real problems that people face. Yep. So besides forklifts, what else are you guys using your technology for? We do uh, yard trucks as well, where we have partners. So we don't develop them ourselves, but we work with some of our partners who develop yard truck solutions. Uh, we also work with delivery rope. Are these moving trailers around? Yep, they're moving trailers around. So do you have to have a CDL license to do that? Correct. But again, you can have that from different places. So I don't even know if you need a CDL to drive in a yard and move, but you might want to just... just to... Yeah, I, I don't know the exact. So in this particular use case, we are not the... I'm, I'm personally not the expert, but you do need to have all the, the approvals that the local site would have on their driver as well. So in a lot of these cases, it's up to the customer to define here are the requirements we need of the drivers. And it could be even on the forklift side that in some cases what we provide is enough. And in some other cases might be a state regulation or it might just be that site regulation. We need them to go through another hour of, of training with our customer. So before we hit record, you told me that this is a great opportunity for people who couldn't normally take a job that at a warehouse. So talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So so one of the interesting things, we spoke about how it's sometimes hard to find labor or it's hard to find warehouse workers. And a lot of that, like we spoke about, has a cultural issue that people don't see logistics perhaps as the same uh, career path as it did in the past. But there's a huge part of our population who would love to work in a warehouse, but they can't for a number of reasons. So they might be wheelchair bound. Uh, they might have had an accident. They might be veterans. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we have a lot of veterans who are looking for these type of jobs. But also, some of them might have issues from birth. They might have autism or similar things. Very noisy warehouse with a lot of sounds and a lot of input. It's hard for them to function in. But what we have seen is we actually employ those people. And there's a great YouTube video we can probably put in the link here for the podcast uh, where we interview some of our drivers, uh, one person in wheelchair one person with autism, where they are able to operate and function fully and, and provide a lot of value to the economy of the United States, but also provide value for themselves, you know, and create self-esteem. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen um, on YouTube also how autistic people seem to understand the interface on a tablet or a laptop better than anyone else. They just quickly pick that up. It's just something in their brain. And of course, this is a massive generalization, but from what I understand, they 
often feel more comfortable on these systems than they do in a, in a, the, you know, maybe a, a chaotic environment. And, and so Absolutely. it could be just perfect. And I'm also just, I'm, I'm in Michigan. I think right now half of, half of the state of Michigan went up North. Now we can go up to Traverse city. That's four hours North of here, but there's a lot of people who go to the upper peninsula where the Finns live <laughs> and they like it up there. They, they, they appreciate the six months of cold <laughs> and it's a beautiful area. And I can see a lot of those people saying, yeah, I'd love to have a job like down, down, uh, they call us the trolls because we live below the bridge. There's a bridge that connects us. So they, <laughs> I would love to have a troll job, but <laughs> I don't want to live with the trolls down here in lower Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's true. And, and then of course, to, to echo what you said about the neurodivergent community, it's, you know, they they have their own superpowers. Like they're one of the most probably, in, in my own view, underrated part of our population. And to give them the ability to function and to give them the ability to be in a, a position where they're safe, they're maybe at home, they feel comfortable, but still do very complex complex tasks at a very high output is, is amazing. And we love that. That's, that's part of what makes it really fun to come to work. Right. So you're doing yard trucks you're also doing the forklifts those are kind of where you began now can you do other vehicles absolutely so maybe i'll take a step back and i'll explain that we at the foundation started as a software company so we have provided software solutions to construction equipment to delivery robots to yard trucks and, and forklifts and so we have always been that kind of company we morphed a couple of years to go after the logistical market. So we morphed into more of a hardware and safety company as well. But all of those all, uh, I wouldn't call them old, but all of those prior customers for, yeah, yard trucks, delivery robots, construction equipment, those are still very much active. That's in your DNA. <laughs> definitely in our DNA. Now, are you also able to provide people or is that the company's job to get find headcount for these projects? That's a great question. So one of the things... Speaking again, how to morph. And when you're a young startup, uh, you do have to go through several iterations of your company. But we have now started to provide the driver as well. Now, it's up to our customer to decide if it's going to be our driver or their driver. But uh, we have been able to, to provide drivers at a very competitive rates, very high bar. And typically what we see is when we put up our own drivers against some of the customer's drivers, our drivers actually have a higher throughput. So we're now starting to become more of that service enabling company as well. So when when our customers look at us, they look at us like, in, maybe in the past they looked at us as, okay, you guys do some software. Then they thought of us, okay, well, you guys do the software and the hardware. But now they look at us as, you will unload all of my trailers. That's what you're going to do. Or you're going to load all of my trailers. Or you're going to take all this pallets moved from A to B. So it's a full, full suite of solutions to make that happen. Yeah, and you can see the nature of the problem that you're solving, that at some point you can see the hardware being standard equipment in these vehicles, and you could see the software. You guys going back to a software company because things become standardized at some point. But um, I love what you guys are doing. And again, I think there's so, – when I think about all of the remote areas that have – problem getting headcount and then but even it's not just remote areas anymore these i've said this before on my podcast 
one of my daughters was going to college and she had like six weeks before school started. And she's like, well, no sense going to get a job now. And I was like, oh yeah, you just get six weeks pay. That's all. <laughs> so um, she said, well, I could get a job at one of these factories not so far away. And it was like manpower was putting people in. And I remember she went like her first day, she goes, oh, it's ridiculous. I don't think I want to do it. And I was like, you know what? I, why don't you stick with it? You're not going to work in a factory your whole life, but stick with it because you'll do it for six weeks. You'll make good money. And then at the end, from now on, you'll I'll always be able to say, I worked in a factory. I understand how factories work. And it was funny be, being a manufacturing guy myself in my past. She'd come home and talk, oh, my God, the incoming quality is horrible. And I was like, oh, my God, my daughter's a factory rat. Listen to this. <laughs> but they were shipping the most of the workers would come by bus from Flint, Michigan, which is probably 40 minutes away because there's not enough people in this area to do that work. And that's not rare. That's that's just how it is in this, this country. We don't have enough people to do some of these jobs that have to be done. Yeah. You know, if you just look at the amount of open jobs in manufacturing logistics, I mean, it's horrendous how many open jobs there are. Yeah. And then you have this part of population, exactly what you said, which is maybe they're close to retirement. Maybe they want to live in a certain part of the country where there's no jobs and they will pick the lifestyle over access to the jobs. And, you know, who are, who are we to judge them? But then to enable them to then get jobs, even though they want to live in, uh, let's say they want to live above the bridge or they want to live far <laughs> out here in climate, um, you know, you want to enable them to still contribute to society and still make a make a living pay. Yeah. So you guys are solving a few problems here. You're solving the one problem, which is you're making this a better job. If I can do that job remotely and live at my cottage that is a way better job where you say, I don't have to commute anymore. I don't have to live in a big city. I live, I live close to my, uh, to a lake that I fish in every day. Life is good. And you're solving the other problem. And so you're making the job a better job for, for the, and I think it's going to make it more, much more attractive. So I love that. So I want to take a quick time out to tell you small parcel shippers, listen up. I want to help you save 40% on your small parcel shipping. So if you're an e-commerce guy or you're a warehousing guy and you do a lot of e-commerce shipments, listen up. I know we're all used to using the big guys. You have UPS, you have FedEx, you might be able to also use uh, the Postal Service. And we really haven't had a choice until now. Well, we all know there's these good regional carriers out there, but very few people take advantage because they don't have that national reach. Well, they do now because my friends over at Tusk Logistics, that's T-U-S-K Logistics, put together technology that connects all these great regional carriers. And regional carriers, by the way, have better pricing. They have better service in the regions they serve. And there's no reason not to use them now because now you can have national, national reach with the regionals. And again, the guys over at Tusk Logistics, they have got great technology, and they've also got negotiated rates, pre-negotiated rates with these small parcel carriers. So you get better service, big savings, and you get the Tusk technology that connects it all, and you get Tusk's great customer service. You're going to get better customer service with Ben Emmerich and his team and uh, than you'll ever get at the big guys. So check them out. 
Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. And right at the top, it says, get started, hit that button and save yourself 40%. So getting back to it, forklifts, yard vehicles. What about some of these like delivery? Like I, I know you're not doing long haul yet, but what about delivery vehicles? Yeah, so we do some of the delivery vehicles where we don't do them ourselves, but we do provide software. And you can just think about the delivery vehicle driving vast distances inside of these cities. And you yourself have probably walked around in the city and you're on the phone with someone and you're speaking and suddenly you lose connectivity for a couple of seconds and oh, now we came back. Where were we? And you keep talking. Right. And you think that that stop in connectivity or maybe that suddenly you have no connection with Verizon or AT&T right. is a big problem. But imagine if you were driving a vehicle and suddenly you, maybe you see a person, you see a kid ahead of you and suddenly now the video freezes for a couple of seconds. That is not a great experience. and That's not a great solution. So we do provide a lot of video streaming and, and helping with connectivity solutions there as well. We can't be bad customers, but we're in that space. We are going to get there. I've said this before on my podcast regarding autonomous is we have excellent truck drivers right now. So we have the very best truck driver. Let's say he's been driving for 25 years. He had one accident. You go, that's fantastic. No tickets. Fantastic. But if we had an autonomous vehicle that they said, oh, it was in an accident. It's been driving, drove 2 million miles, but it had its first accident. That would be front page news worldwide. And if someone was killed, it would be horrific. So I think the bar for uh, autonomous over the road vehicles is super high. And before we hit record, I was talking to you about this is we're all comfortable though with cruise control. That's kind of autonomous. We're also comfortable when you say to my car, parallel park for me, that's autonomous. I think a lot of the newer cars will slam on the brakes before you hit, you know, a wall or something. That's an autonomous function. So I think slowly but surely we're working some of these autonomous functions in, but it doesn't sound like we're going to, it won't be one fell swoop where they say, you're going to, uh, they'll sit in the back seat. You'll, your car will drive you tonight. You'll be like, no, 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 <laughs> not yet. So interesting there, Joe. It's the, um, First of all, I think that autonomous system should have a very high bar. I actually think it should have a much higher bar than a human driver. Uh, so I, I like the regulation around that, and I think that's the right way to go. But it's that interesting thing of do we spend all of this, because let's face it, if we look at the self-driving cars, they spend billions of dollars in the U.S. over probably the last five, ten years. Billions of dollars. And yet there's maybe 200 self-driving cars all in prototype status uh, driving around. But is there an ADAS function? So basically a, a assisting driver a system there that helps drivers become more safer. Like exactly what you mentioned, cruise control. Maybe sometimes there's a sensor looking at you and you start closing your eyes and slow down the vehicle. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And you can do a lot of those maybe easier steps. Still very complex, but easier than self-driving. If you can make those small step changes, you'll have a huge gain in safety. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've thought about this sometimes. So somebody's told me this, or maybe I read it, that 40% of, if you go into big cities, 40% of the cars in big cities are looking for parking spots. And, <laughs> and that's what they're on the road for. And I was thinking, 
No, okay, that's interesting. Well, if you could, well, first off, maybe we could map the parking spots. And so, and if, if you're in cold weather, in the Northeast, the Midwest, out where you're at, and you say, I'm going to this restaurant with my significant other, we pull up in front of that restaurant. If my car could go the, the last half mile, last quarter mile, going 20 miles an hour to go park, I think that is a good step in the right direction. Do I want that same car to get on the expressway and drive me home? No, <laughs> not yet. But I think that's that's the kind of thing I think we'll see is taking little bits and pieces. And what you described is enabling, enabling technologies that'll enable us drivers to be safer. And I think you said this before we were hit record is this idea of if we could put a driver in the seat and have some, a whole bunch of assistive technologies that make make them safer. Because what we're not good at as humans is concentrating on the road for hours at a time. We get distracted, want to play with our phone or play with the radio or whatever we're doing. And if we could have technology that would help us see some of these hazards before they become deadly, that would be great. Yeah. And it's you know, we, we like to look at it as how do we provide superpowers to our drivers? And you mentioned safety, and safety is super important for us, but also things like how do we make them more efficient? If they are turning, and, and think about it when you're parking your car, and sometimes nowadays modern cars, you see like like uh, colored strokes to show you how far away are you from obstacle, what's your turning angle, how are you going to turn into a parking spot? The more we can develop of those type of things, the more we build a system where a remote driver is just maybe easier to hire uh, or require less training, but they're becoming more and more efficient. And there's another example, which is, which is fun, which is if um, today, if you work in a big warehouse, you drive around your forklift and suddenly you need to use the bathroom, you're going to have to drive all across that warehouse, park your vehicle and, and walk into the restroom. And, Maybe the vehicle stands there for 10, 15 minutes, and then you come out again, you drive back, you lost another five minutes just in driving. We're also building a lot of systems where if someone has to, quote unquote, take a break from driving, then we can easily slot in another driver. So instead of the vehicle being down for 10, 15 minutes, we can keep driving and we can just basically layer. And oh, that's a fantastic idea. And you think about if you and I owned a factory or a warehouse, we wanted to work 24-7. And also when you hire people, we we still kind of are tied to this idea. I hired Nils and Joe. I expect them to work at least 40 hours a week. But if you said, hey, I only need you two hours, two hours a day for this week and I need you eight hours a day next week. All of a sudden, if you can do this all remotely, it gives us the ability to use workers in new and novel ways. And I think, again, I'm thinking of retirees, but I think it also applies to all of the other people we talked about, maybe in wheelchairs or autistic or whatever, or just don't want to just don't want to drive to the city to get a job. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. or, you know, college kids, maybe you go to class and now they have two hours. Are they going to go work in a coffee shop? Or are they going to just drive for two hours and then go back to homework? Uh, I think there's endless potential. Here. If you could use your cool technology to convince those kids that it's a video game, <laughs> they would do it for free. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting recruitment issue, right? Because you have the, um, of course, you want the best drivers and you want to coach them and train them properly. But 
you've got to build a system in a way, no matter what you're doing, delivery robots or forklifts or your trucks, build it in such a way that it's quite pleasant to drive it. It's a good experience. You feel good about working in front of your computer. You feel like you've actually accomplished something. And another big part of that is, well, how do you build a connection between the remote driver and the people on site? So we do a lot with audio where people can talk to each other and communicate. And, and you don't just want to look at the remote drivers. That's Nils over there operating. It's actually that that's one of our team members over there operating. And we feel loyalty to him as we feel loyalty towards us. Excellent, excellent. So I know these cars that are driving, you know, the autonomous vehicles. And I think, I forgot the guy's name, but I had the guys on talking about they drive between Houston and Dallas, which I think is 250 miles. And the reason they chose Texas is because they don't have snow or rain as much as other places. And they're using, I guess, LIDAR for that to kind of memorize the road and make decisions that way. And um, are you using a similar technology for it to navigate around the warehouse? Well, so my guess is that they're probably using a number of sensor suites to solve the problem. And so do we. So cameras, of course, so that people see what's happening in front of them. We also use certain type of LIDARs uh, where we look for obstacles, we detect obstacles, and depending on our speed and the obstacle speed, we can be intelligent about slowing down or, or even braking. But we are not limited to one type of sensor technology. So different use cases, even if it's still a forklift, but maybe slightly different use of the forklift, we can customize the type of sensor we use. Yep. I- I know you guys are probably already thinking about this, but I can see right now we look at pallets and they're just wood pallets. You and I could build some out in the garage, no problem. But I see a time where those, as the sensor technology keeps getting lower and lower in cost, that we're going to start seeing what I'll call smart pallets, where you say that pallet is associated with this part number. And when I need my trucks or my forklifts to go get it, they're, they're following that sensor. Absolutely. And I mean, things like RFID or, or other type of sensor are, are, are absolutely things that it's interesting. They've been around for a while, but to your point, when the cost hits a certain level, suddenly they become applicable at much, much higher scale. And, you know, some of our customers, they have million square foot warehouses, several million square foot warehouses, and they need to track everything, every single pallet down to a certain location. And you're right, sensor in the pallet can be one thing. But I'll say something that's interesting about when, you, when you're not working in logistics, you think all pallets are the same. But the amount of different pallets out there is incredible. And one of the issues that sometimes autonomy system has to deal with is that a pallet might not look like the system expects it to look. It could be broken. It could be things hanging down from it, plastic wrap, whatever. It could just... It could be different type of materials, wood, plastic, whatever else it might be. And sometimes autonomous systems struggle with that complexity and diversity. While a remote driver can look at that and say, oh, I know what type of pallet this is. Okay, the shrimp rack is, is, is put too far down on the pallet right. and covering the holes. But I know where the, where the uh, actually uh, forks on my forklift uh, can, can drive in. That that reminds me, and again, of being a logistics person, I, you know, was never as much ne- never in the location where they're loading the stuff into onto the pallets. And I remember being down in Mexico this before the pandemic, 
And there's all these different palettes and all these different parts. And it was almost like a puzzle. Like, how do we maximize? You want to fill up the truck, right? You want to maximize the use of these pallets. And it, it's not easy for a lot of companies. And I think we're going to get smarter and smarter about that. But I think that's why I think smart pallets are going to make more and more sense as these sensor, the price of sensors comes down. And by the way, you and I were introduced by Sankulp over at Gather AI. I will put a link to that interview. Sankulp and his team over at Gather AI have made these drones that are able to do auditing within warehouses. And it's unbelievable how quick and efficient they are compared to humans. And they take pictures of a box on a pallet. And if all of a sudden it looks damaged or it looks like it's not supposed to look, it will flag it, take a picture and compare that to what it's supposed to look like and then send the discrepancy to you. But also I've said this, if you and I, Nels had to go to a warehouse today and walk all over the place and do an audit, we're going to be tired after a while and we're going to start making mistakes where drones don't get tired and they don't make mistakes like we do. Also, let's just say uh, we misplaced uh, (laughs) some high-end electronics equipment. (laughs) Do you want to uh, let us do the audit or would you rather those drones do the audit? And I'm always, when somebody says drones, my first thought is I don't get it yet. I'm not against it. But drones in a warehouse to do auditing, that's brilliant because we can control that environment. So I will put a link to that. And again, uh, Sankalb is over at Gather AI. But what he's getting at and what you're getting at is these warehouses are going to become very high tech. And we might have fewer workers, but we're going to have the workers in there with better jobs. Better jobs, but also providing higher value. And I think Gather AI is a fantastic company. I've known Sankup for a couple of years. I'm a huge fan of him. And, and I think he's going after that interesting thing of that. At the end of the day, these logistical companies, they make their money by getting a pallet in through one doctor, storing it and getting the pallet out, whether it's the same pallet or repackaged out the other. And everything else in between there, that's not just moving the pallet in and out. It's not always waste, but it's not the value creation. And, and, and I think that it's, there's such a good movement now and, and a good momentum in the industry of, of looking at things differently and like what technology can we use to solve certain problems here. I think Gather is a great example and we're definitely trying to help us. Yep. So who's the sweet spot for you guys? Who's, who are you working with the most? Good question. So uh, the sweet spot for us, interestingly enough, is the type of big logistical companies who worked with autonomous systems for years. But unfortunately, for a number of reasons, not always at the fault of the autonomy company, the autonomous forklift or autonomous robot, whatever they're using, just isn't giving them the throughput they need. And it could be that they have staff leaving things on the ground that blocks the robot. It could be things that the robot itself maybe loses its position in the warehouse. But it could also be things that the speed of that vehicle is just not fast enough. Or the task lifting pallets is way too complex for what that system is built for. So we have these companies, they've invested tens of millions, they've tried a lot of solutions, they spend a lot of their own focus time on this, and those solutions still today does not meet the requirements. And if you, if you look at all the forklifts sold in America, 
and you look at, well, how many of those are autonomous? I bet you it's less than less than a percent and probably less than zero percent as well. Because these ones are so complex. And just to finish there, what we do is because we have a human person driving, we can solve a lot of those very complex tasks. So we're not against autonomy and we're we're not competing and always pushing autonomy out, but we might solve the part of the equation where the autonomy fails. So in and out of a trailer, uh, with very complex trailers, it might be restocking in very complex warehouses. It could be that there isn't really a good WMS system. A lot of those more difficult environments, that's where we should. Yep. And we have these problems, and I think we've all experienced them in our careers, is that there's technology that is transition technology sometimes. And I use the example of like fax machines, right? We we had people who were using computers, but they're still using fax machines. Now, if somebody says they use a fax, you're like, why? I think we're going to have people in the middle of our technology for a while. And as much as we'd like to get to the autonomy, it's not quite there. I would also say, I, I get this pitch to me all the time. Have you bought a CRM or an automation system that you aren't getting your money's worth out of it? There's a lot of that stuff goes around. I asked a friend the other day, what CRM do you use? He goes, well, I've used them all. <laughs> and I said, which one are you using now? He goes, none. <laughs> he goes, we've used four different CRMs. And is that a problem for the CRM companies? Of course it is. But it's a problem that that is as old as CRMs. It's easy to get one and it's easy to use it for the first few days. But you sometimes need somebody to coach you through to get you to a place where you're using it on a regular basis and getting your money's worth out of it. So you can go, yes, this works. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's the point is that you have great autonomy companies out there. And I, you know, I used to work in that industry myself and I have multiple friends and super smart people trying to solve this problem, but they solve it in a very in a very controlled way that we're going to pick up a pallet from A and we're going to move to B and that's what we're going to do. But if you look at a normal warehouse and you look at the forklift drivers, their normal day is not moving from A to B. They maybe do that for 10 minutes and then they wrap a pallet over here and then they do something else over here. And it is Some warehouses are a lot more complex than this. Let me ask one other thing, and I know we're trying to wrap this up, but I had to ask this. Um, are, you, are you able also to c c capture data from your machines that are moving around the warehouse? Absolutely. And we do capture a lot of data, but things like we can scan barcodes and save that data, or we can record videos. If there would be a safety incident, we have, you know, perfect 360 around the forklift video of what happened. Are we are able to capture and, and a lot of that data. Now the question is, well, what do you do with that data? And what does the customer, you know, there's some, there's still, I would say, um, I think Gather done a very good job of using that data that they capture. Uh, but I still think that there is a, uh, just like we speak about a CRM, sometimes we have a lot of customers who have a lot of data, but they don't always know what to do with that data, or how to make that data actionable. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, the forklift drivers seldom go from A to B. If you could say, hey, we, we've tracked thousands of hours or tens of thousands of hours of what forklift drivers do and how they approach this operation. 
you can start to quantify that. And then when you say, hey, we're ready for autonomous, this is just, again, I, I know you guys are going to continue being a software company, but I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years you say, yeah, we have the remote, but we also have the fully autonomous just because we we are able to continue uh, growing the the value. Yeah, and our strategy there um, to touch base on that, it's too early to make an announcement, but we'll probably be a partner to the autonomous companies. So we'll probably be an enabler for them to move faster. We, we still believe that, you know, you, you mentioned fax systems. And the fax definitely went away, but sending emails with continuation of fax is still very much valid today. And we believe that there will always be a place for remote operations, for video streaming, and for a human person to jump in and help solve those kids. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Nils. Who else should I interview? Someone who's killing it in the space. Well, I have a great name for you. So in Israel, there is a professor who's now started some company whose name is Moore Peretz. Moore Peretz. How does he spell that? M-O-R-P-E-R-E-T-Z, as in zebra. All right. He is the CEO and founder of Kapow Energy, and he is a brilliant engineer who's thinking about the problem of electrifying resources very differently. It's got a very novel approach to it. So instead of, if you look at it today, we spoke about, you know, this drones and forklifts and stuff. Almost all of them are operating with a battery or maybe they're running in gasoline. But he has some brilliant ideas on how the logistical industry can move away from batteries and more to a continuous charging and powering this vehicle. So I recommend you speak. I love it. And I think the battery, I've had somebody on my podcast from the Propane Education Research Center. And he said, he's an engineer and he goes, I spend tons of time in labs. And he says, I honestly don't think the batteries that we're working in research labs right now is the battery of tomorrow. We're not there yet. We need that next step. And I'm, I'm from an automotive background and I still hang out with automotive guys you don't hear a lot of them saying, yes, this is the answer. We're there. And yep. I just had a friend of mine point out, oh, China's the leader in electric vehicles. We were falling behind. I said, 65% of their electric energy is from coal. <laughs> I'm like, and he goes, what do you mean? I go, it's those like dirty, those dirty energy right there. So, you know, we, we've kind of jumped to this m- mindset that, boy, these are, this is the answer. It's part of the answer. <laughs> but what you should talk to him too is not only maybe the power creation is dirty, like you said, coal or, or whatever it might be, but just the amount of environmental issues in building oh, the battery. God. Lithium is not a clean. No, no. It's, um, it's, it's funny. You can say they're emission-free vehicles. Their supply chain's probably dirtier and worse than the current uh, supply chain. But <laughs> we're going to figure it all out. Anyway, Nils, I really appreciate coming on the podcast. And I love what you guys are doing. This is, I don't always hear something that's brand new and interesting like this, but this is, this is fantastic. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you, Joe, for having me. It was a pleasure being here. And for people who want more information or speak more, you can definitely reach out to our website or you can contact me on LinkedIn as well. I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website and any other links. If you have some video links, um, we'll put those in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. And I love what you guys are doing. 
Thank you so much, Joe. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank thank you. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.